Well, hello again, everybody. I know it's been a long, long time. And I know this because I've been getting beat up by a few of you out there telling me, eh, when's the next podcast? When's the next podcast? Yeah, okay. Uh, so anyway, here it is. So I, there's been a lot going on in my life. Those of you who know me, you know what's going on. You follow me on the Facebook. Um, so it's it's been kind of a, a, a rough time the past, you know, few months. Um so we'll we'll see we'll see where it goes. But I wanted to kind of get something up tonight for everybody who you know enjoys my podcast, the the, the two or three of you that listen anyway. Um, so I decided uh, looking for material. I decided to uh, for those of you who don't know me, um, I've always been a sort of a wannabe writer. And once upon a time, which would be back around the mid two thousands, I've been wanting to just like start writing a book. I'm like I I love writing. Why not? put it together and just write a book i mean not to make money but just because i love doing it it'd be cool to actually have written a book and get something published even if i have to publish it myself um and uh, i i took from my inspiration I, it was i was sitting there you know this is like the early to mid 2000s and i remember thinking i'm like i want to write a book but what the hell do i write about i don't i'm not an expert on anything really i don't really know what i want to write about i don't and then my inspiration was actually the movie under the tuscan sun now you you know that I've lived in Italy, you know, total, what, 15 years? And when the Under the Tuscan Sun came out, oh, I fell in love with the movie immediately, and I just connected to it so much. Uh, it's about a, a professional writer or professional author, whatever, Frances Mays. Uh, she basically, in her real life, she, if the movie is to, believe, to be believed, um, she hit rock bottom, got a divorce. I think her husband was cheating on her, something like that, whatever. And then uh, they sold the house, and she kind of hit rock bottom, and she took a tour of Tuscany for for something, and she just saw this villa that was being sold, and she decided to buy it sight unseen. Well, not sight unseen. She went there, but she didn't see the whole thing. She's just like, I want to buy it, and she did it. And then, you know, the story kind of goes on from there, how she sort of turned her life around and, you know, became a local and bought the villa and everything else, blah, 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 blah. And then it's about her great life in Italy and and I thought to myself, after about like this, I don't know, Jesus, seventh or eighth time watching it, I thought to myself, you know, my story's more interesting than hers. Maybe I'll, maybe that's what I'll write about. And so that's what I kind of decided to do. And so somewhere around, I don't know, 2006, 2007, uh, I just started writing. I just opened my computer and I just started writing. And the words just kept, just started flowing. And I basically my story that I started writing, my book that I started writing was about, uh, how I was a sort of a frustrated guy who was kind of hit rock bottom, uh, you know, and then decided to, obviously I couldn't afford to buy a friggin' villa in Tuscany. Uh, so I went the cheap way, the hard way, and I decided to uh, join the Army. I, I had been in the reserves before, uh, but I decided to go active duty because they guaranteed me a slot in Europe, and that's what I really, really wanted. Uh, so I don't want to give away too much. Um, but I thought it might be kind of cool to sort of, you know, Maybe just read the first few chapters of my book about how I how it was I made the decision to join the army, come to Europe, and then and then maybe you know the second part of the book that I started writing about where I actually came to, to Germany and and what it's all about. I've been thinking a lot about those days lately and and how great it was, how much fun I had, and all the adventure. And I had no responsibilities. I was just a young single guy and just living my life and and everything else and. You know, it's just, when I think back on those days, man, man, those are some of the best years of my life. Uh, So anyway, I I thought it might be kind of cool to kind of read the book out loud. Uh, You'll have to deal with my voice, I'm sorry. And for some reason, we're in Colorado here, as you know, 
and it's really, really dry here. And I just got back from going out to grab something, and I sneezed about 30 times in a row. So if I sound a little nasally, I'm sorry. It's because I just sneezed about 37 times in a row. Uh, you just have to deal with it. But uh, anyway, I thought it might be kind of cool to just kind of read, like I said, the first few chapters of the book. And then for part one, about how I came to make the decision to join the Army and go overseas. And then maybe part two in the next next part uh we'll talk about you know my first impressions of what it was like to go to arrive in a foreign country and everything else and and how that went which is really cool so uh without further ado i give you part one of my book that i started writing entitled dancing lessons from god man i'm miserable here and going nowhere but joining the army I sat at the kitchen counter at my mother's house and spoke those words rhetorically. She offered no advice, not even her customary, well, maybe it's something you should pray about, but rather stood by the stove silently and let me pour out my frustrations. I was trying to make the hardest decision I've ever had to make in my life. I was 26 years old and I was contemplating enlisting in the U.S. Army. I was a college graduate. I had, I had a seemingly good job with my own office, a lot of friends, and plenty of reasons to stay right where I was at. So how had I reached this point? It didn't come about suddenly. Looking back, it had been building for quite a while, although I didn't realize it at the time. Now, I don't believe in destiny or any of that crap, but the forces that led to me sitting on that stool in my mother's kitchen, trying to figure out what to do, were at work for a long time. I would make that difficult decision, and it would change my life in ways I could never imagine. But to understand and appreciate my journey, you must first know a little bit about me and the life and times I grew up in. I was born in Nashua, New Hampshire, the youngest of three children. I grew up in one of those sleepy little bedroom, bedroom towns that you always hear about. It was called Litchfield, New Hampshire. It's a suburb of both Nashua and Manchester, New Hampshire's two largest cities. Nashua is, is a very, very modern city of about 80,000 people, most of whom work in the greater Boston area. Boston is about 50 miles south, but Nashua is very attractive to a lot of people who work there for several reasons. First of all, it's a lot cheaper than Boston. Property taxes are lower. Schools are better. There's a lot less crime. There's a lot less traffic. It's much quieter. New Hampshire has no sales tax, so Nashua, being right on the Massachusetts border, north of Boston, is a shopping haven for people from below the border. The southern part of Nashua is crammed full of shopping malls and car dealerships. For people who work in the greater Boston area, Nashua and its surrounding towns are perfect because they can work in Boston and enjoy all its advantages and the higher wages, yet live in New Hampshire and avoid all of the normal disadvantages of a big city. In fact, it's this favorable juxt juxtaposition that led Money Magazine to name Nashua to twice, excuse me, twice name Nashua as the number one city in the entire United States to live in, first in 1987 and then again in 1997. My parents divorced when I was three or four years old, and my mother received custody of us three kids. We lived in Litchfield while my father was one of the many people described above who worked in Boston yet lived in the Nashua area. My mother had no college degree or formal job training, so she did the only thing she knew how to do for a living and ran a daycare out of our home. It didn't pay very well, and even with the child support she received from my father, it seemed like she was always struggling financially. My father, on the other hand, had a really good paying job and dabbled in real estate on the side, which allowed him to live in a nice condo and take yearly trips to the Caribbean to go scuba diving. We weren't poor, but... I certainly never had anything handed to me. I learned from a very early age 
that nothing is ever given to you easily. You usually have to make some kind of sacrifice for the things you really want. As for me, I was born in 1971, which means I was a bona fide child of the 80s. I'm old enough to remember a lot of the things that happened in the 70s, but my formative years all took place in the Ronald Reagan years. I was a below-average student, partly because I never considered myself that smart, and partly because I didn't really have a great work ethic. The only thing I really ever truly enjoyed was sports. My sport was soccer. I grew up watching and playing, and as far as I can remember, it's really the only thing that I was really better than average at. I played only one year in high school, but unfortunately my need for money to pay for things like a car, the prom, senior pictures, and such superseded my need to participate in sports, so rather than play my last two years, I worked. I mention this because it's always been one of my main regrets. I wouldn't realize it until years later, but soccer was the only thing that I really ever had any passion for, and I honestly believe that had I been been born in any other country, I really believe my fate would have been as a professional soccer player. Now, my work ethic, or lack thereof, had put me in a bad position by the time I was a senior in high school. The year started, and suddenly it dawned on me that I would be graduating in less than a year, and I had absolutely no plan for the future. Most of my friends already had their immediate futures laid out and were applying to colleges. I had honestly never really considered college. However, a conversation that I'd had with my father several times during my high school years kept creeping into my mind. It had various versions, but it usually went something like this. You're going to college. Dad, I, I don't really have the grades for college. I'm a C student. Doesn't matter. You're, you're getting in somewhere. You're going to college. I'll never be able to afford it. It's too expensive. You let me worry about that. You're going to college. Well, I don't really want to go to college. I don't care. You're going to college. Now, my sister, who was three years older than me, had gone to work for the local police department out of high school. My brother, a year older than me, had joined the Navy. So in retrospect, it was obvious that I was my father's last hope of having one of his children go to college. With the aforementioned reoccurring conversation in my mind, and with no other post-high school prospects, I figured I'd better go to college after all. I thought my father would be ecstatic when I told him of my decision, but his only reaction was to inquire about how I intended how I intended on paying for it. I believe his exact words for, Great, how are you going to pay for it? It turned out that he did intend actually on helping me financially, but he certainly wasn't going to pay for the whole thing. I would have to come up with some money myself. Now, had I known this before, I probably would have dismissed the notion of going to college as soon as it entered my scattered little mind. However, by this time, I had already been accepted to Franklin Pierce College and was starting to feel good about my future as a member of institution of higher learning. Well, I was crushed. The only jobs I'd ever had were menial high school type jobs, janitor, video store clerk, stuff like that. Certainly nothing that was going to allow me to afford whatever portion of the cost my father expected me to pay. My mother would have helped in a second if she could have, but she was in no financial position to do so. So it was that I made my, made my second major life-altering decision that year and decided to join the U.S. Army Reserves to help pay for college. It turned out to be a bad decision in the end, but it was not without as good aspects as well, not the least of which was some financial benefits that allowed me to actually go to college. My four years of college were a microcosm of how my life has sometimes gone. I had no plan, no thought to what I was supposed to be working towards. I didn't go to college because I had a particular career in mind that I wanted to prepare for. I went to college because I didn't know what else to do, and my father had always drilled into my head that I was never going to be successful in life if I did not go to college. 
What he failed to tell me was that simply going to college does not make one successful. You have to have a plan, a goal, something to spend your, your four years working towards. I had nothing of the sort, and as it turned out, I spent my four years so wrapped up in how I was going to pay for my tuition and my bills that I didn't even declare my major until my junior year. And when my last year came around, I had no more idea of what I was going to do after college than I did when I first started. It was not a comforting thought, I can assure you. My four, year co- my four years of college were not completely wasted. I had learned a lot of cool stuff, met a lot of nice people from different parts of the country and the world. I'd been exposed to an unbelievable amount of culture that I would have missed out on had I never gone. However, the one thing I didn't leave with was any kind of idea about how to put any of it to use in the real world. I had majored in mass communications with a specialization in television and media, but since I didn't plan on moving to Los Angeles or New York, there was very little chance that I would actually work in that field. I graduated in May of 1993, and by autumn, I still had absolutely no idea about what I wanted to do. My best friend Mike had gotten a great entry-level job at a a promising new country out near the seacoast called Cabletron, and his grandparents had offered him the use of their beach house on Hampton Beach since it was too far to commute. He asked me and my friend Scott if we were interested in moving in with them there, and I figured, eh, you know, what the hell, I can look for a job there as 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 easily as I could anywhere. I worked a bunch of temp jobs to keep food on the table, which is a horrible way of life that I wouldn't wish on anybody. The only thing that had gone, the only thing that got me through was to keep convincing myself that it was only temporary until I could land a good permanent position doing, somewhere doing, well, doing something. I figured that with my mass communications degree, maybe the best thing to do was go into advertising or sales. So I started applying for every opening I could find, but nobody would hire me because I had no experience. I eventually talked the sales manager of one of the bigger local radio stations into taking me on as an unpaid intern so I could gain some experience. I worked my ass off of them, researching statistics and graphics, putting together advertising proposals and such. After several months, one of the salespeople quit, and they were so happy with my work ethic, imagine that, that they hired me to take her place. I was so excited, I felt like I finally found something that I could I could excel at and make a successful career out of. But as it turned out, my career in sales and advertising was just like everything else in my life. I didn't do it because I enjoyed it or was really interested in it. I did it because I felt it was the best or smart thing to do. As I would figure out years later, this is the absolute wrong reason to do anything. I never thought about everything that the job would entail. I only thought about the fact that I finally was where I was supposed to be at a job where I wore a suit and tie every day, drove a nice car, had my own business cards, took clients out for business lunches, all the stuff that I thought made me successful. Not surprisingly, I, last, I lasted a less than a year before I realized it wasn't for me, despite a little bit of success at it. So what next? I thought about what I wanted to do, what, interest, what interested me, but not much occurred to me. What did occur to me was that the happiest times of my life were spent with the high school youth group of the church that I grew up with. People used to say that I would make a great youth minister someday, so I thought maybe that was my calling. The only problem was that I would need to go back to school, which I couldn't afford. And so I decided to move back to Nashua and spend a year working up to save, or working to save up enough money to go back to school. I got a mundane job at my mother's company doing general assembly work. But after about six months, it was clear that a career as a youth minister was not to be my calling. Not only had I not saved a penny to go back to school, but I quickly realized that although I've always been sort of a religious person, my lifestyle was nowhere near as pious as such a career would demand. 
And so I found myself once again with no career, no career prospects, no direction, no clue whatsoever what to do with my life. Enter Vegas. One of my best friends from high school was Randy Pouliot. Now, Randy had spent a semester at University of Lowell in Massachusetts after graduation, but he'd run out of money and had to drop out. <coughs> Excuse me. He was, to go, he was going nowhere, working in a pizza place, when he decided to join the Air Force. At the time, he was stationed at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas and called out to me out of the blue one day and said, hey, I'd be finishing a temporary duty stint in Italy, and he and his wife Kelly were planning on driving from Nashville to Las Vegas when he got back, and he was wondering if I wanted to go with him. Now, I had no job, no commitments, and so I eagerly agreed, and in the fall of 1995, we took off on what would be the greatest road trip of my life up to that point, one that would also plant the seeds for my impending wanderlust. We went south from Boston on I-95 and drove down to Manassas, Virginia, where we stayed overnight at a small military installation called Vint Hill Signal Farms. Then the next morning set out across Virginia towards Tennessee. I was struck by how beautiful the area was. Randy had arranged for us to stay the weekend at the home of a fellow Air Force colleague whose family lived on a farm outside of Knoxville. And it was in Knoxville, at a Waffle House, that I was introduced to how seriously people in the South take their college football. It was a Saturday, and the University of Tennessee had a game that evening, which we all planned to attend. We were stopped at the Waffle House for breakfast before we met Randy's friend Sean, and for some reason the waitress was being extremely rude to us. Now this went against everything I'd always heard about Southern hospitality, so I asked her if there was a problem. She responded by yelling to everyone in the restaurant, Hey y'all, we got ourselves a goddamn Bulldogs fan over here. At which point the entire waitstaff and the cook came over to our table looking very, very angry. It suddenly dawned on me that I was wearing a British soccer shirt of Manchester United, whose colors are black and red. And the University of Tennessee's opponent that night was the University of Georgia, whose colors are, yep, black and red. Now, I've been a huge Notre Dame fan of my whole life, but that probably didn't matter to these freaking people. I tried desperately to make them realize that this was not a Georgia shirt. I even showed them the British flag on a shirt to no avail. Finally, I said, look, I'm not even from the South, man. I'm from New England, to which the cook, an older gentleman with greasy hair and even greasier apron and a cigarette dangling between his lips, replied in a thick Southern drawl, no, hang on, huh? He probably a goddamn no damn fan. At this point, I got up, I went out to the car, and I changed into a plain white T-shirt just to avoid any further complications. When we met up with Sean an hour later, he just laughed and said, damn, Rick, you trying to get killed? And the rest of the weekend was actually really enjoyable. We went to Knoxville that night for the game, which turned out to be a thriller as Tennessee, led by sophomore phenomenon Peyton Manning, defeated Georgia right at the end of the game. From there, we drove to Nashville and checked out the Grand Old Opry, then continued on to Memphis where we took in Graceland. I wasn't too impressed by Arkansas, which had some of the rudest and slowest people I've ever encountered, but Oklahoma was a bit better. Through the Texas Panhandle, where I enjoyed my first visit to a Hooters restaurant, then straight through New Mexico and Arizona until we hit the Hoover Dam and Lake Mead as the sun was coming up, and oh, what a sight to behold. Finally, Las Vegas. I stayed with Randy and his family for about two and a half weeks. He showed me all around Vegas. We went to all the casinos. I gambled a little, saw some shows, the usual stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me. Eventually, it was time to fly back home, but I would return a changed man. The trip across country and the subsequent couple weeks in Las Vegas had made me realize for the first time that there was a whole world outside Nashua, and I liked it. I wanted more of it. 
Being back in Nashua suddenly felt like, like it was a prison. I had gone back to my mundane assembly job at my mother's company, but I just could not focus on anything. All I thought about was the three weeks I spent on the road and experiencing life, what, what life was like elsewhere in the country. My relationship with my girlfriend at the time suffered terribly as I was never happy and she thought it was because of her, which is obviously not the case at all. One day it dawned on me that the only way, or maybe the way out was the Air Force, just as Randy has done. I called a recruiter and I told him I was interested in joining. He asked me several questions such as my age, marital status, that I have a college degree, then told me that I was a perfect candidate and asked me to come down and see him. I told him that I was currently in the Army Reserves, and he sighed as he replied that he couldn't take me after all because they were not allowed to enlist people from other services. Needless to say, I was absolutely crushed again. My only hope of getting out and doing something meaningful had just vanished. Going, after duty, going active duty Army was not even an option because of my experience in the Reserves had made me realize that I didn't I didn't really like the Army. I'd, I'd had a lot of friends in my unit who had been once active duty and hated it, which I really it really soured me to the idea, so I never really considered it. After that, I spent a lot of time at the local Barnes & Noble just scouring the newspapers from around the country looking for something, anything, that I might be qualified for. The only good prospects I had were all sales-related, and I didn't want to go down that route again. Things were looking bleak when one day I opened the local newspaper, the Nashua Telegraph, and I noticed an interesting ad in the classifieds. It seems the paper was buying a new voice information system and was looking for a motivated individual to, to run it, promote it, basically handle every aspect of it. The qualifications they listed matched my resume pretty well, so I half-heartedly applied and didn't think, didn't think much of it until they called me for an interview. The interview went well but I wasn't really thrilled about it until the, until the sales manager told me that they would start me off at $31,000 a year. Now, that may not seem like a lot of money to some of you, but you got to remember, first of all, this is 1995, and also to someone who had spent his share of time toiling away at temp jobs, menial assembly work, and who had even sold Kirby vacuum cleaners for a couple weeks. Oh, yes, I did. It was a small fortune. Now suddenly my attitude changed and saying that staying in Nashua didn't seem so bad after all. I convinced myself that I would be happy because I'd finally landed a job that would pay me enough to make a good living and everything that came with it. I loved the job right away. It involved sales, but that was only part of it. First, they sent me down to Pottsville, Pennsylvania for training on how to run, the, run and promote the system. When I got back, I hit the ground running. The system was fascinating at the time. It was basically a computerized phone system that received satellite feeds from various media services. Then anyone in the local area could call free and get information by basically pressing a four-digit code. For example, if you wanted a baseball score from last night, you called a free number, entered a four-digit code for the baseball scores, and you'd receive them over the phone. We also had stock market updates, soap opera updates, weather updates, pretty much anything you can imagine. The newspaper would run a full or half-page ad every day with a listing of what was available. Part of my job was to sell ads on the system, and I received a commission on what I sold. We called the system Press Line, and it was an instant hit, averaging over 30,000 calls a month my first year. Advertising revenue was steadily climbing as I invented new and creative ways for local and national businesses to spend money on Press Line. I love the fact that although I answered to a sales manager... I had a great degree of autonomy on the job, as I've always worked best without someone looking, looking over my shoulder every two minutes. I also love putting on my tie every morning and going to work in my big office, 
and doing business lunches and all that stuff that I thought I'd left behind. I did a lot of public relations projects with local charities, businesses, and schools. It was also rewarding when someone would ask me what I do for a living and I'd tell them I'd run press line and their eyes would get big and they told me how much they loved it and called all the time. While I didn't feel important per se, I certainly did feel like I was starting to make my mark, such as it was, on the, on the community. Now, Pressline was a great system, but in retrospect, it was doomed from the start. It went online on February 1st, 1996, which is right around the time that more and more people were being exposed to Al Gore's fantastic invention. That's right, talking about the Internet. Now, as I mentioned, Pressline enjoyed a very successful first year, but as more people in the Nashua area went online, the call counts the call counts started dropping now once the call counts started dropping the advertising revenue started dropping as well i started having to spend more and more time on the sales end but despite my efforts more and more businesses decided to put their dollars into the internet the telegraph had launched its own website in 1997 which didn't help matters now looking back i should have seen the writing on the wall earlier but nobody really knew how tremendously widespread the internet would become at the time so I plugged away despite declining revenues and an increasingly frustrated boss who I'm sure was getting pressure from his boss to get things turned around. It didn't take long for me to realize that my job was in serious jeopardy. Well, what could I do? As usual, I had very little prospects to fall back on if and when the, it finally crashed. I panicked a bit and started looking for other jobs just in case. I knew that eventually the internet was going to kill Pressline and so I figured maybe I could get out before that happened. But as usual, the only jobs that I was qualified for were sales jobs, and after getting burned twice, I was severely reluctant to seek a, thor a third torching. Things got progressively worse. I'm embarrassed to admit it now, but at some point I basically gave up on press line. I got so disenchanted with making sales calls, which 95% of the time ended in rejection, that I started spending more time in my office on, on the internet scouring job sites and want ads from around the country. This only made me more depressed as it made me realize how unqualified I was for so many things. The dearth of new advertising dollars meant my commissions were suffering as I skated by on the backs of my core clients. And the hits just kept on coming as one day my roommate came home and announced that he was going back to school and would be moving out at the end of the month, leaving me stuck. Unable to find another roommate on such short notice, I was forced to do the unthinkable. Move back in with my mother. <sighs> So here was my life. I was 26 years old, a college graduate, working in a job that I was miserable at and I had no future, living at home with my mother. What passed as a social aspect of my life was in the toilet as well. Almost all of my friends had gotten married and some were having kids by this time, so my single status wasn't often compatible with their newfound domesticity. Plus, my only single friend, the Slav, worked night shift, worked night shift at his job, so I seldom ever saw him. Although I wasn't always miserable, depressed, I was alone much of the time. I would spend the weekends driving up to the mountains to go fly fishing or hiking. When the weather got cold, I'd spend entire weekends in Barnes & Noble just slamming cappuccinos and scouring the out-of-town out newspapers for anything, anything that would get me out of Nashua. The highlight of my week was Thursday nights when I'd go over to my best friend Mike's house and watch Seinfeld with him and his wife. This was my life. In between it all, there was one bright spot, and that was my brother Eric. Eric was a year older than me and had joined the Navy after high school. He had been on the USS Missouri during the Persian Gulf War and had been able to see a lot of the world during his time in the service. 
I was in college at the time and he used to send postcards from places like Thailand and Australia. And while I was a bit envious of him, I just took it for granted that my future was to graduate, get a job, get married, buy a house, have kids, basically live the American dream. The idea of traveling never entered into my mind. After the Navy, Eric lived a vagabond life working on boats and living in places like Seattle, Baltimore, and New Orleans. He'd also backpack around Europe and have some great stories. After my cross-country trip to Las Vegas and due to my ever-increasing desire to escape Nashua, his stories of his travels became more appealing to me. Occasionally, the idea of following his lead popped into my head, but it usually popped back out just as suddenly. I wasn't 18 years old anymore and just out of high school and joining the military wasn't really an option. And I knew nothing about boats anyway. <laughs> but sometimes, sometime in 1997, Eric came home and to visit and, I asked, and he asked if I wanted to meet him in Montreal to hang out there and in Quebec City, then drive back to Nashville with him. I jumped at the chance and my friend Dave and I made the five-hour drive north where we hooked up with Eric and his friend Mike. Montreal and Quebec are two really beautiful cities, and the nightlife in Montreal is especially fantastic. We ended up making another trip to Montreal that year, and those trips were a godsend for me. Sitting there in Hurley's Irish Pub, downing pints of Guinness with a, a bunch of Canadians and Irishmen belting out football, or as you know it, soccer songs at 3 a.m. Man, it felt like I had finally escaped Nashua and was experiencing life for the first time since my trip to Las Vegas, if only for just a few days. I became jealous of Eric and his seemingly carefree life on those trips because while I would be going back to my mundane life, he would be driving around the country on his way back to New Orleans when nothing was ever dull. This thought never escaped me as I would sit in the Monday morning sales meetings dreading the thought of what new hell awaited me that week. Sometime around the beginning of 1988 came the biggest blow, the one that would eventually send me over the edge. As I mentioned earlier, press line had stagnated and my sales commission had plummeted. I didn't have a lot of bills, but I was starting to struggle a bit financially. It dawned on me that I might need to take on a second job until either my press line commission started rebounding, which wasn't going to happen, or I was able to find something else. Of course, the only time I had was at night, and there wasn't much I was qualified for, so I ended up taking the only thing I could find out, or I could find, and that was a cleaner for three hours a night at a nearby corporation. That's right. On top of everything else, I was now moonlighting as a janitor just to make ends meet. Every day I'd get out of work, head over to my second job, take off my tie and slacks, put on my grubby jeans and sweatshirt, and spend three hours mopping floors, vacuuming, and cleaning up other people's messes. I was never afraid to do this sort of work, and I wasn't afraid of getting dirty or what have you. However, I was miserable because I felt that after having putting in my dues with college and the Army, I felt like I should have been long past this. How the hell did I up and end up in this position? I placated my misery by continually telling myself that I was not the only person who was forced to work two jobs and get by, but there was nothing wrong with it. But the final straw came one night as I was vacuuming one of the offices. I noticed a familiar. I noticed something familiar hanging on one of the cubicles. Staring me right in the face was a full-page press line ad that the guy working there had cut out of the paper and hung up at his desk. I thought to myself, I wonder if this guy knows that the guy who runs that system is the same guy who comes in here every night and cleans up after him ever after he goes home. Well, that was it. I had to do something. I went home that night and went to bed, but couldn't sleep because my mind was just racing, trying to come up with something, just something, anything, 
that would get me out of my situation. I'd been dying inside for some time, but suddenly my soul was screaming that just enough was enough. I had to do something. I just didn't know what. Now, the feeling of doing something drastic actually had started several weeks earlier when I went to see a movie called Goodwill Hunting. I originally went to see it because it took place in Boston, but little did I know that it would contain a scene which, without sounding overly dramatic, would change how I looked at my life. In the film, Matt Damon plays a young genius named Will, who was born in Boston. He'd never experienced in life. He'd never experienced life, but was arrogant because he was an expert on just about any subject you could think of. The kid was a genius. Robin Williams plays a psychiatrist, and Williams' character Sean is the exact opposite of Will. He's not the smartest person in the world, but he has more life experience than just about anybody in the world. He's a Vietnam vet whose wife had died of cancer, who, who had traveled the world. So there's a scene where Will arrogantly puts him down and demeans him, and he first lashes out at Will. However, after considering the situation, he asks Will to meet him, and he lays the following speech on him. Sean says, You're just a kid. Forgive my horrible Boston accent here. I'm doing my best. But still better than Robin Williams in the movie, if you ask me anyway. So Sean says, You're just a kid. You don't have the faintest idea what you're talking about. Sean, Will says, Why, thank you. Sean says, it's all right, you never been out of Boston. Will says, nope. And then Sean says, so if I ask you about art, you probably give me the skinny on every art book I've ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual, sexual orientations, the whole works, right? But I'll bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling, seen that. If I ask you about women, you'd probably give me a syllabus about your personal favorites. You may, be, you may have even been late a few times, but you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up to a, next to a woman and be, feel truly happy. You're a tough kid. And then ask you about war, you'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You never held your best friend's head in your lap. Watch him gas his last breath as he looked for you for help. I'd ask you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet. But you never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable, known someone that could level you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you, who could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel, to have that love for her, be there forever, through anything, through cancer. And you wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in the hospital room for two months, holding her hand because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss, because it only occurs when you've loved something more than, your, more than you love yourself, and I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. And I look at you, I don't see an intelligent, confident man. I see a cocky, scared, shitless kid. Now that scene spoke to me so loudly that it was like a, like a smack upside the head. It instantly dawned on me that I was Will. I mean, minus the whole genius thing, of course, but Will nonetheless. I thought it was hot shit because I'd gone to four years of college and I could hold a conversation on several different t subjects, whether it was history, art, science, whatever. I seldom lost a trivial pursuit. I usually answered most of the questions on Jeopardy correctly, but like Will, whatever knowledge I had was strictly from, Brooke, from books. I hadn't experienced anything. I'd studied Mike Michelangelo in college, but so what? I'd never seen the Sistine Chapel either. I was just like Will and I didn't like it. I wanted to be like Sean. 
This realization about festering inside of me, it really hit home that night. Chapter 2 The next day I got to my office with my customary large regular coffee from Dunkin' Donuts, sat down at my desk, pulled out a sheet of paper, put my mind to work. I decided to make a list of everything and anything that I wanted to do. I put myself in the mindset that I was starting from scratch and had nothing to lose so anything goes. My final list consisted of two things. Number one, travel, especially to Europe. Number two, go back to school for something that I enjoy and can actually make a career at. That was it. As I looked at that list, I thought to myself, man, imagine if I could do something that would allow me to do both, like going to college in Europe. But since I couldn't even afford to go back to school in the U.S., doing so overseas was obviously out of the question. Suddenly, the idea of enlisting in the Air Force occurred to me again. It had been a few years since I tried the first time, so maybe they had changed the no prior service policy. Besides, I'd finished my enlistment in the Army Reserves at that time, and I wasn't even in anymore, so I excitedly picked up the phone and dialed the recruiter. And, of course, my joy was nipped in the bud pretty quick, as they still weren't taking anyone who had already served in other branches of the military. I considered the Army, but quickly dismissed it. Now, that may sound crazy to people who have been in the Army, because at the time, the U.S. had a lot of bases overseas in Europe, and I was sure that I could get a slot there. <clears throat> Excuse me. However, there were several other factors that prevented me from seriously considering the Army. First of all, if I was going to quit my job and join the military, it would be for two reasons. To see the world, or at least Europe, and be able to get my master's degree while on active duty. Now, I knew that most bases had an education center where I could probably finish my degree cheaply, if not free, the problem was that my MOS, which is your job skill, was a 31 kilo, which was a communications job. Now, I'd met several people in my reserve unit who had been on active duty in Europe with my MOS, and they all complained that they were never able to take any college courses because they spent so much time in the field and exercises and whatnot. That was a big turnoff for me because the thing that I hated most about the reserves is going to the field for our two-week annual training exercises. I mean, I had fun with the guys there, but didn't exactly enjoy living in a tent for two weeks. So if I was miserable during two weeks a year, I mean, how could I even consider going active duty or I'd no doubt have to spend a lot more time than that in the field? Not only that, but if I'm in the field so much that I'm not able to finish my master's degree, then when I finish my four years, I'd be in worse shape than, than when, I, when I enlisted. So the Army was out. I'd have to come up with something else. Another week or so went by and I still had nothing. The Army kept creeping back into my mind as a possible only option. I started thinking that maybe if I were able to change my MOS or my job skill to something computer-related, it might work. It didn't take a genius to figure out that anyone with the computer skills had, had a bright future, so maybe that was my way out. I might spend a lot of time in a field, but if I'm learning a skill, skill like computers, it would not be wasted time. Now, eventually, I started considering the Army as a possible option for this reason. Not a very attractive option, to be sure, but I was getting desperate. Now, the other thing I had to consider was that, <clears throat> excuse me, although uh, I didn't even know if I was even young enough to enlist. Now, that might sound funny since I was 26 at the time, but I felt like the oldest 26 in the world, the oldest 26-year-old in the world. So about a week after I'd been denied by the Air Force, I placed a call to the local Army recruiting office. At this point, I still hadn't decided that it was something I wanted to do. I just wanted to get some questions answered so I could make an informed decision one or the other. 
U.S. Army Recruiting Office, Nashville, New Hampshire. Hi, uh, I'm just hoping you can answer a couple questions for me. First question is, what is the age limit for prior service and enlisting active? 35. Okay, good. Second question. Uh, I was in the reserves for seven years, and I've been out for, for about a year. If I enlisted, if I re-enlisted active duty, would I be able to change my MOS? Yes. Okay, thanks. That's all I need to know. Click. Now, I dealt with recruiters before from my time in the, in the reserve, so I knew how they worked. I was familiar with the little tricks and games and that they can sometimes play on unsus- unsuspecting possible recruits. I was determined not to be one of those naive recruits who believe everything that, a recruiter, that the recruiter tells them. I knew that the recruiter can promise you all kinds of stuff, but it's not until you get to the military entrance processing station, otherwise known as MEPS, that you actually find out what's true and what's not. So I knew that I had to talk to the recruiter initially to get my questions answered, but I would have to get to the MEPS in Boston before I could actually really make any decisions. I thought about it, and if I could truly change my MOS, this might work. I decided to go to the recruiting office in Manchester rather than Nashua because there was much less chance that I would run into anyone that I knew. The recruiter that I talked to was a young E6 guy who was actually a Manchester native. He told me that the Army had a program called Hometown Recruiter, where you could volunteer to be a recruiter, and they would send you to your hometown to do it. I didn't let on how desperate I was to get out, and that the Army seemed to be my only option as I wanted to maintain the upper hand. I wanted to make sure that he knew that while I was considering enlisting, I still had a good job and didn't necessarily need to enlist, so he was going to have to offer me a really sweet deal to get my name on that dotted line. In fact, this was actually not too far from the truth. I was still very hesitant about joining the Army. It's not something that most 26-year-old college graduates do for good reason. I asked about officer candidate school and was told that it's easier to enlist than apply while on active duty. Now this I knew to be true from people who had done it, so I kept that in the back of my mind. After a couple of visits over the next week or so, it was time to go down to the MEPS in Boston. I called in sick that day, the recruiter put me on a bus, and away I went. I went through the battery of tests and application forms. As I sat at the map station, I sat there and I looked at the kids around me, most of them seeming so young, desperate, and impressionable. I actually started feeling better about my situation. Some of them were from really bad backgrounds and neighborhoods. This was probably their only chance in life. Finally, somewhere in the afternoon, I was called to go to the guidance counselor's office where the quote-unquote negotiations would take place. I walked to the door and I was met, with a couple of, met by a couple of soldiers in Class B uniforms. They looked at my file and they said, oh, okay, you're prior service, so you'll be coming in with the same MOS. Without even thinking, I replied, well, the recruiter told me I'd be able to change my MOS, and before I even finished the sentence, I dropped my head and started laughing. Right, right, what was I thinking? As it turns out, you actually can change your MOS when you re-enlist. The problem is the only things you can change it to are like infantry, cook, mechanic, you know, stuff like that, jobs that most people don't want or that the Army has a hard time filling. Things like computers and such were impossible to get into because they were so highly sought after. So I got snookered snookered by my recruiter. Well played, I thought to myself. The chances of me actually signing up after that were very slim, but but they didn't give up. I explained my situation, that I'd be leaving a good job to do this because I wanted to see Europe and finish my master's degree, And if I couldn't change my MOS, then I would always be in the field and I'd never get to do any work on my degree, so it wouldn't be worth it. First, they guaranteed me a slot in Europe. 
Then they tried to sell me on the idea that my MOS was not that bad, that there would not be that much field time, and that I'd still be able to work on my degree. They mentioned the GI Bill, but I told them I didn't qualify because I already had partial GI Bill when I was with the reserves. They tried every trick in the book to convince me, but I would not budge. I was convinced that there was something that they could do to get me an MOS change, and I was determined to call their bluff. They even called some general officer in charge of something or other and tried to get a waiver, but nothing doing. Then one guy said, well, what if we were able to get you money under the GI Bill? To which I replied, I already told you. I'm pretty sure I don't qualify because I already had it partial with the reserves. But he said he found a regulation that says that because I was in the reserves and only received a partial amount, they could still give me $16,000 on active duty. I thought about it for a minute. That much money would certainly be enough for a master's degree. They also informed me that because I was prior service, I would only have to enlist for three years instead of four. They were making it very attractive, but they still weren't giving me the one thing I wanted, and that's a change of MOS. I held firm on that point, and after a couple of frustrating hours for everybody, I told them no thanks. Now, in a way, I was bluffing to see if they really wanted me bad enough to somehow get me an MOS change, but... Mostly I really meant it. I was not interesting in I was not interested in enlisting, quitting my job, leaving my friends and family, and going to live in a tent for three years. So the recruiter picked me up at the bus station and asked what had happened. I guess he wasn't used to uh people coming back from the maps without enlisting and just could not understand why I hadn't after everything they offered me. For the first time, I think he realized that I wasn't like the rest of his recruits and decided to take another approach of me. He said, look, man, I've already passed my quota for the month, so whether you come in or not doesn't really affect me that much. So let's be real. You came to me for a reason. You you seem like you have a good job and everything, and there's obviously something missing, and that's why you came. I'm not going to give you any bullshit. If you sign up and go to Europe, you're going to spend some time in the field. I spent a couple tours here, so I've done it, and I'm telling you, First hand, it's not this bad. It's not as bad as you think. You still get to spend most of your time in garrison. You still have plenty of time to do some traveling and even take some college courses if you want. It's not paradise. It's the army. You'll have to put a lot into it, but you'll get a hell of a lot out of it. You'll get a hell of a lot more out of it if you really want. Now, most guys don't realize that, but you're smarter and have been around more than most guys that I put in. So just do me a favor. Just take a few more days and think it over. Today's Tuesday. Call me on Friday, and if you, have, if you haven't changed your mind, then you know what? You'll never hear from me again. Now, I was convinced that I wasn't signing up. I agreed to think about it, and I called him back on... I agreed to, I agreed to think about it and call him back on Friday. I got home, I opened a beer, I watched some television, and went to bed and fell into a deep sleep. The next day, I was back in my routine, making sales calls, having fruitless sales meetings as usual. Except that now, I began to believe that there was a way out. I didn't have to do this anymore if I didn't want to. The real question was, how bad did I want to leave? The answer, very bad. I finished up the day I went home. My mother was in the kitchen cooking dinner and I sat at the counter and I said I needed to talk to her about something. I told her about the events of the day before at the MEP station in Boston and I said I was having a really hard time making this decision. I didn't ask for advice, she didn't didn't offer any. Instead, for the first time, I just started pouring out my frustrations with how my life was turning out, that I felt like I had accomplished nothing and had nothing promising on the horizon about how miserable I was at my job and especially how embarrassing it was for me to be 26 years old, working two jobs and living with my mother. 
All my friends were getting married, having kids, buying houses, and here I was no better off than I was in high school, for Christ's sakes. What I realized was that I might be miserable in the Army, but I was already miserable here, so why not be miserable in Europe, at least? So I decided to look at the worst-case scenario and see if I could live with it. The worst-case scenario was this. I join the Army and I go to Europe. I spend most of my time in the field, and I never get to do a lot of traveling or take any college courses. I still finish after three years, having seen at least a little bit of Europe, and with $16,000 to go back to college with. Could I live with that? Hell yes, I could. I was joining the Army. I was joining the Army! I didn't wait until Friday. I called a recruiter the next morning and informed him of my decision. I remember telling him I remember him telling me that I wouldn't regret it. He had no idea how right he was. He put me back on a bus to Boston where I signed my name on all the forms and they gave me a choice of several dates to ship out. Now the dates prevent, presented a minor problem because the latest one they had was April twenty fifth and my sister Tracy was getting married on Memorial Day weekend at the end of May. Since my assignment to Germ since my assignment was to Germany there was no way I'd be able to make it home for the wedding, so after only a month, so I picked April 25th and hoped Tracy would understand. When I left the MEPS and got home, I felt better than I could ever remember feeling at that time. It was a feeling of liberation, like I was finally escaping a prison that I've been, I've been living in for so long. Where there was no hope, there suddenly was some. It was so strange. I'd, I'd feel this decision for so long, but now that I'd actually made it and there was no going back, I actually felt better than ever, and I couldn't fathom why it took me so long to make it. I had no earthly idea what, made, what awaited me on the other side of the ocean, but I didn't care. I was just incredibly excited to find out. It was to be an adventure, and adventure was exactly what I needed in my life at that point. I could have been making the biggest mistake of my life, but I didn't care. At least I was getting on a Nashua. And maybe only for three years, but I was finally going to be experiencing life. But first I had to take care of things there. I handed in my two-week notice, which was a huge relief. Most of the people at work were a bit shocked, to say the least, but they understood. I think the management was probably as relieved as I was when I handed in my notice since press line was in a rut and I knew they held me responsible. But I still had a good relationship with them and it was an amicable parting. I did everything I could to make sure they would be able to run press line in the interim while they looked for my replacement. And those two weeks were actually pretty enjoyable. I didn't have to make any sales calls, so I spent most of my time tying up loose ends and practicing my German. My best friends at the paper, Bob and Mary Gorman, were really sad to see me going through me a going-away party at their house. It was to be the first of four going-away parties people had for me. Eric and I took one last trip to Montreal, and I enjoyed it so much more knowing that I didn't have to go back to work when I got back. I forget exactly why Eric was in town at the time, but I was really glad he was. He really was my inspiration for this crazy decision, and I think he, more than anybody, understood my wanderlust and need to see the world. On the way home, we stopped in Claremont, New Hampshire. Claremont is a town on the border with Vermont, and it's where both of my parents are from. Most of my relatives still live there, and my mom's side did a get-together so they could all say goodbye. The one thing I remember most was my Uncle Jerry, a Jehovah's Witness. He was not happy about me joining the Army. I guess Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in military service, and he threw a bunch of Bible verses at me that were supposed to explain why, but I just kind of chuckled and said goodbye. I always liked Uncle Jerry, and I didn't want to offend him. We headed back to Nashville, and my dad had planned another going-away party for me and had invited his side of the family and all his friends who knew me and wanted to say goodbye. It was at that party that I received one of the greatest, most perfect gifts I've ever received in my life. 
As the party was winding down, Eric pulled me aside and handed it to me. I opened it, and it was a travel guidebook, Lonely Planets, Western Europe on a Shoestring. He mentioned that he had used it when he was backpacking around Europe and found it extremely useful and figured it would be the, it would be perfect for me, so he bought me my own copy. On the inside copy, on the inside cover was written the following, quote-unquote, Unexpected travel plans are dancing lessons from Gua... Jesus Christ. Unexpected travel plans are dancing lessons from God. Kurt Vonnegut, 18 April 1998, Eric Thibodeau. Although I loved it right away, I had no idea how important that gift would be. In the following years, that, get, that book went with me everywhere, and I relied on it so much that I, re, I referred to it as the travel Bible. Even now, all these years later, I still use it sometimes. Although some of the info is out of date, the corners are frayed, the cover is worn, and the pages are marked up, all filled up with my notes, highlights, and the occasional phone number or email address from women I'd, I'd met in my European travels. Eric had given me the perfect gift, and as I thumbed through it, I couldn't help but feel that despite the freedom he had and all the places he had been, my brother was just a bit envious of me being able to start over and experience all this for the first time. There was one more last goodbye party to go to, and that was the one thrown by all my friends. All my closest friends, the people I would miss the most, were there. It was sad saying goodbye to everyone, and I realized how much I would miss sitting around on Sundays with the guys watching the Patriots games, not to mention the annual, annual pilgrimages to Fenway Park for the Red Sox games. But the decision had been made. It was no going back. I went home and packed as much stuff into a duffel bag as I could and prepared to leave. I had seen the movie Braveheart a few months earlier, and one line from the movie kept replaying over and over in my head. Every man dies, not every man really lives. I was 26 years old, and I was finally about to start living.